Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Wow, it's awesome. Congrats, you guys. Very, very cool. And uh, I, don't know, I, I don't know how to preach after that. So let's just close. We're done for the day. It's awesome. Yeah, don't clap for that. Don't clap. Still got a long time, but uh, that was super excited. I actually had a young man in the cafe. Uh, you know, we, we were going to baptize four people, and he said, he said to me, he said, you know, we're baptizing four people uh, on Halloween. And he goes, so take that devil. And then, and then he said, you should say that in your sermon. So there it is. You got it. But uh, super excited to have you guys here. Um, let me just say, uh, if, uh, if you are a guest with us, like Colin just mentioned uh, a moment ago when he was on the platform, or if you just happen to be joining us for the first time on live stream, let me just uh, say a very special welcome. We're so glad that you are our guest. We're so glad you're able to be here uh, with us. If you are joining us on live stream, if you would do me a favor and you would just, in the comment section, if you would just let us know where you are watching from. We always love to hear uh, the different states and the different locations and places that people are watching, so let us know, and we'd love to hear how you're connecting. Uh, but if you are a guest or you're just joining us, you're actually catching us in the fourth part of a six-part series that we've been calling Powerless to Change, question mark, and then our tagline is life through uh, the spirit. And so, like I said, this is week four, so you're kind of catching us a little bit in the middle of a conversation, but let me see if I can just recap uh, what it is that we've been talking about. So over this series, one of the things that we've been talking about is actually this statement right here, and we've been making this statement every week, and the statement is that the real change that God really desires is really possible. It's really possible. And I think we just get to witness that, actually, just a moment ago, that the real change that God really, truly desires in our life is really possible. And here's why we said that this statement is so important, is we said that for many of us, and especially for those of us maybe who follow Jesus, which I know is maybe not everybody who's here today, but for those of us who follow Jesus, we said that sometimes it can be hard for us to believe that this is real. Sometimes it's hard for us to believe that this is actually a possibility in our life, that the real transformation that God wants to see in our life is actually possible. And we said part of that is because sometimes we find ourselves so exhausted and so frustrated with our so many seemingly attempts to change that sometimes we can start believing that it's not possible. Because it seems like no matter how many times we try to change, we always end up reverting back to the same habits, to the same behaviors, to the same place that we started. But in this series, what we've been saying is that no, 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 the real change, the real transformation that God really wants in your life is actually a possibility. It is a reality. But here's what we said. We said in this series, what we've been talking about is we said that a lot of times where we get it wrong is that sometimes we look to the wrong source for that transformation. And so what we've been talking about is this. We've been saying the transformation that God desires is not something that is self-generated. It's not something that is empowered by self. What we actually said is this. We said that the transformation that God desires is spirit-generated. That is to say that it is, it, is, it is something that is generated by the Holy Spirit. And I know for a lot of you, and especially if you're just joining us in this series, that might sound really bizarre to you. That might sound really strange for you when I say that. And I think the reason for that is because, quite honestly, the topic of the Holy Spirit is one, and you know, even if you're a person who grew up in the church, this is one of those topics that I think is oftentimes really confusing. Uh, it's one that is very misunderstood. 
Uh, this is one of those conversations that, depending on your upbringing, I don't know if you're anything like me, I know in my upbringing, uh, this was something that was widely neglected. We didn't really ever talk about the Holy Spirit. Or maybe for you, you came from a different background where maybe there was abuse, where there was an overemphasis on uh, the Holy Spirit. And so because of that, what we're doing in this series is really trying to gain clarity on one question. And the question we're trying to gain clarity on is, how are we, how are we to understand, how are we to relate to, and how are we to interact with the Holy Spirit? That's really what we're talking about. We're saying that the, the source of transformation in the Christian life is the Holy Spirit. So the question is, well, how are we to understand the Holy Spirit? How are we to relate to the Holy Spirit? How are we to interact with the Holy Spirit? What is the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person who follows Jesus? And then what does it look like to begin cultivating a relationship with him, with the Holy Spirit? And so the place that we've been looking, there's a lot of places you can go in the Bible, but the place that we've been looking is actually in Romans chapter 8. So this whole series has been built out of and based on uh, Romans 8. So if you've got a Bible, let me just encourage you right now, why don't you open it up with me, and let's get back to Romans chapter 8 as we continue in the series. If you did not bring a Bible, page 916 in the Bibles that are under the chairs, you can flip there if you want to. And if you don't own a Bible, you can have one. You can take it home. We'd just love for you to have your own copy of the Bible. You can make that a gift, all right? So Romans 8 is where we're going. And the reason that we're looking at Romans 8 is because this chapter, it's actually sometimes called the greatest chapter in the Bible, and, it, and for good reason. It's an amazing chapter. But what you're going to see is that the main theme and the main character in Romans chapter 8 is the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to see a lot of emphasis that's put on him. Now, as, as you're going to see... Uh, we're going to be picking it up where we left off. But over the past weeks, here is what we have learned about the Holy Spirit so far. So in week one, what we discovered was that the Holy Spirit is a person. Now, I don't mean human, but the Holy Spirit is a person. And so actually, Pastor Kevin did such a good job helping us understand this. We said, when you look in the scripture, here's a great starting place for you to understand the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. And one of the clearest indications that you're misunderstanding, that we are misunderstanding the Holy Spirit, is when we refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. And so when we say it, when we refer to the Holy Spirit as an impersonal force or as some kind of you know, vague power, that's a clear, it's a clear indication that we're misunderstanding the Spirit. The Spirit is a person. So in the same way that I would interact with my wife differently than I would interact with gravity because my wife is a person and gravity is an impersonal force, right? The Bible's gonna tell us that the Holy Spirit is a person. So we started with that. We said it's very, very important. Then the second week, we said this. We said that the first thing that should come into our mind when we think about the Holy Spirit, according to the Bible, is that the Holy Spirit gives life. So as we were reading Romans chapter eight, we said this is one of the key aspects of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in the business of giving life. This is what he's been doing from Genesis chapter one. This is what he does throughout the scripture. The Holy Spirit gives life. And not only that, we said the Holy Spirit also gives new life. The Holy Spirit is responsible for doing those things. And that led to the third thing, which we talked about last week, and that is that the Holy Spirit now empowers the Christian life. And so the Bible is going to tell us that the way that transformation happens is when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit begins to transform us. This is why the Bible is going to say in places like Galatians, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your life, then you won't be doing what the sinful nature craves. And so do you see it? You see it here, right? You see, you see the, the way that transformation takes place. How? You let the Holy Spirit guide your life. You follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. You live by, you are led by, you are empowered by the Holy Spirit, and that will lead you into 
a place of transformation. So we've covered a lot over the past three weeks. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that if you missed any of those on our website, our app, our podcast. But today what I want to do is I want to talk about a very transformative and a very transformative work and evidence of the Holy Spirit. I want to talk about a fourth thing that we're going to see today. And before we dig into that, I want to start off, I want to kind of prime the pump by, um, by, by showing you two findings that I think are significant to what we're going to talk about today. So here's finding number one, finding number one. And this is actually something we talk about at intro. And so if you've ever been to intro, it's a class we offer here at Grace, and it's an introduction to Grace, the Medina East Campus. If you've never been there, I would encourage you to come. We actually have one in a couple weeks. But at intro, uh, we talk about this. There, there's a book that was written by a guy named David Benner. So David Benner is a spiritual counselor. He's a, Christ, a Christian counselor and a spiritual director. And he wrote a book called Surrender to Love. And in his book, at the very beginning, he poses this question. This is the question he poses. Imagine God thinking about you. So imagine God thinking about you. And then he says this. What do you assume God feels when you come to his mind? All right, so he's asking the question, what do you think God thinks of you? And what do you think God feels when you come to his mind? And this is what David Benner said in his book. He said that by and large, overwhelmingly, the most common answer that he gets to this question is one word. And the one word is this. He's disappointed in me. What does God feel when he thinks about you? He's disappointed. He said that is by and large, overwhelmingly, the most common response that people give. Now, my guess is that if, if it's overwhelmingly the most common response that he's heard, there's probably many of us who might resonate with that. Right, that's finding number one. Here's finding number two. Uh, there's a, a guy named Paul Hegstrom. He actually developed a very po powerful counseling program called Life Skills. Uh, Life Skills is actually something that our church offers through some of our other campuses. We offer Life Skills. It's a very powerful program. But what Paul Hegstrom says is he says that of all of the childhood wounds a person can experience, and I don't know if you're familiar with that language, childhood wounds is something that psychologists talk about. It's things that happen in your childhood that have persisting effects into your adulthood. Like, it would be that kind of thing. So it'd be things, uh, for example, like physical abuse or verbal abuse or sexual abuse or abandonment or rejection or whatever those things might be. And what Paul Hegstrom says is he says that in his study and in his experience, the the most impactful and damaging of all childhood wounds is rejection. That is the most painful and the most damaging of them all. This is what he says. He says, rejection in the original family is worse than a terminal disease, for the disease has an end date. However, the effects of rejection can last a lifetime, and they can affect all aspects of our lives and our relationships. That's what he says. Now, some of you might be saying, okay, so uh, disappointment, um, rejection, what does any of this have to do with the Holy Spirit? I thought we were talking about the Holy Spirit. And what I'm hoping that we're going to see today is that these, these topics, that what, what I'm trying to bring in front of you, has a lot to do with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, maybe more than you might think. And what I want to show you today is that according to Romans 8, I think the Bible's going to tell us that one of the key roles of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is going to testify that we are God's children. And so I want, to, I want to show you this today, that one of the key roles of the Holy Spirit is the Bible's going to say that the Holy Spirit testifies that those who follow Jesus are God's children. So let me show you what I'm talking about. We'll start off in verse 14. All right, so look, at, look with me at Romans 8, verse 14. 
For those who are led, this is where he goes on, kind of picking it up where we left off, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit that you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Right, now, I, I know that even just reading this passage, there, it, it sounds kind of complicated and it's worded in kind of a weird way. But one of the, I want you to notice that a key evidence and a key manifestation of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit, what he does is he testifies. This is one of the, well, this, is, this is a deeply significant aspect of the Holy Spirit's work in our life and in our heart. The Holy Spirit is going to testify with our spirit and I'm not even sure how all of this works, but he testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And I want you, when you look at this passage, I also want you just to pay close attention to the language, to, to the way that he words this. I actually think it's very intentional. So notice he says that the Holy Spirit is gonna testify that we're God's children. And then notice he says, those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God, the children of God. Now, that, again, that sounds weird to us, but I actually believe that this is very intentional. And I think what the apostle Paul is doing here, he's the one who wrote the book of Romans, I think that he's actually trying to draw our minds and remind us of another event that happened in the Bible where you see the Holy Spirit doing this exact same thing. All right, maybe I can ask it this way. I know that some of you might be newer to the Bible. Maybe you're not quite a Bible person and you're just kind of getting acquainted with it. But my guess is that there's probably a good amount of you who have at least read the Gospels, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you've read the Gospels, maybe I can just ask you this question. Can you think of another time in the Bible, can you think of another time where you see the Holy Spirit testifying that somebody is God's son and then leading that person by the Spirit can you think of another time that that happens? And I see some of you nodding your head, and if you are, here's why. This is a hyperlink, and it's supposed to draw our mind and our attention back to the baptism of Jesus Christ, the baptism of Jesus Christ. You actually see the Holy Spirit working. In this. I just want to show you. It's actually back in Matthew chapter 3, and you can flip your Bibles if you want to a few pages back that way, or I can just put it on the screen. But let me just show you what, what happens. So this is Matthew 3. The Bible says that John the Baptist is baptizing Jesus. All right, now watch the language. It says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. He went up out of the water. This is such a relevant passage. We just got to see people get baptized. So that's kind of cool. Talk about Jesus. This is the, 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 uh, the OG baptism right here. So, um, so Jesus was baptized. He went up out of the water. And look at this. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love and with whom I'm well pleased. Now, I want you to pay very close attention to this scene. The Bible says that when Jesus is baptized, that the heavens were opened up. The heavens were opened up. Now, I have no idea what that looked like and what that even means. But the Bible says that in some way, there was like a curtain was, was pulled back and you were able to see what was happening in heaven. And the Bible says that in that moment, now notice this, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, was descending like a dove. Now, just to be real clear, I just want to clear this up, Holy Spirit's not a dove, 
All right, I've had people who are like, I've been trying to get a visual of what the Holy Spirit looks like. And then I thought, a dove. And I'm like, no, that's not it. He was like a dove, not a dove. Turn to your neighbor, say, not a dove. All right, not a dove. Spirit's not a dove, not a bird. Holy Spirit's not a bird. All right, so, but he descended like a dove. And the Bible says that he alighted, that he was alighting, which is such a weird word to us. I don't know if I've ever used that word in any sentence in my life before. But what's interesting is, if you, if you were here with us a couple weeks ago, you might remember in Genesis 1, the Bible said that the Holy Spirit was hovering. And we talked about how that same term was used of the way a dove would hover over its nest. And so you actually see some similarities here. But then I want you to notice what happens. Watch what happens next. The Holy Spirit comes to Jesus, comes upon Jesus. And then the Bible says there's a voice from heaven. And the Father speaks. And what does the Father say? Now, notice this. He says, this is my son. This is my son. And what else does the father say? What else? I love him. And what else does the father say to the son? I'm pleased. I'm pleased with him. I'm pleased with him. I want you to get this. This love and acceptance and relationship is all communicated from the father to the son through the spirit. Through the spirit. You see all of this happening in this one passage. Now, Here's what I want you to consider with me. All of this is being communicated to Jesus. And just consider this. This is Matthew 3, okay, Matthew chapter 3. What, up to this point, what has Jesus done for the kingdom of God? What kind of ministry has Jesus accomplished? What has he accomplished up to this point? And you know what the answer is? Nothing. Jesus has preached zero sermons. Jesus has called zero disciples Jesus has performed zero miracles. He has healed zero diseases. He has done none of those things. All of that comes later in the Gospel of Matthew. And what I want you to see is that God's statement to him before Jesus even does anything is, this is my son, and I love him, and I'm pleased with him, and I'm pleased with him. Now, you guys, I think this is so important. I think this is so deeply significant. And and here's, here's why I think this is so significant. Every single one of us in this room, every single one of us, we have all inherited a vision and a version of what love is. We all have that. And maybe it was given to us by our parents, or maybe it was given to us by uh, the people, our relationships around us, or our friends, or whatever. But here's what I believe. I believe that in all of us, in our version of love that we have in our mind, that there is some, for, for probably all of us, there is some version of this, that love is somehow conditioned by my performance. That if I, if I can do certain things, then I can become a lovable person. That if I can accomplish certain things and I can please you in a certain way, then I can become a pleasable person to you. And so love and acceptance is conditioned upon my performance and how I do and the things that I do or do not do. I think for some of us, we, we operate that way. And here's... Here's the problem with that. The problem is that inside of all of us, and I believe it's just hardwired in us from the moment that we were born, the deepest need that we have within the recesses of our soul is to be loved and is to be accepted. And for some of us, we know that and we can admit that. And for some of us, for some of us we can't even admit that. But the reality is that the very deepest parts of our soul, the thing that we long for the most is to be loved and is to be accepted. And when that is taken away, when a person feels like they are a disappointment, 
or when a person feels like they are rejected, that leads to all kinds of brokenness in our behaviors and in our relationships. What I want you to notice in this passage is that for Jesus, this love and this acceptance and this relationships precedes anything that Jesus ever does. This comes first. The Father communicates to the Son through the Spirit. Now, here's where it gets kind of crazy. I want you to notice the next thing. So this all happens. The Spirit testifies. This is my Son. And what happens in the very next verse? Well, watch this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit. He was led up by the Spirit. Does that sound familiar? He was led by the Spirit. And where did the Spirit lead him? Into the wilderness. To be tempted by the devil is where he led. Now, this always seemed weird to me. Like, just a verse before this, God was like, this is my son. I love him, and I'm well pleased. And the next verse, the Spirit's like, all right, now go see the devil. Like, and I'm like, it doesn't really add up to me. But the, why, why, is, why is he led by the Spirit into the wilderness? Why? Well, the Bible, notice it says that to be tempted, to be tempted, or some of your translations say to be tested, to be tested. Now, what was that temptation? What was the testing? Well, we don't have time to get into all of it. Maybe you've read it before, but the Bible tells us that he was actually tested three different times. But do you know what the primary foundation of those testings were? What was the, what was the, what was the baseline? And do you know what it was? You're going to see it. Every single time he comes to him, the tempter is going to say to Jesus, if you are God's son, if you are the son of God, I want you to see this, that every single temptation from the evil one starts by challenging his identity every single time. God, God said that he loves you and that he's well pleased with you. And he says that, that you're his son. Then why are you out here? Look at your circumstances. That doesn't add up. You, got, you are God's son. You're God's son. Then prove it. Then show that to be true if that's real. Every single time the tempter is attempting to get Jesus to doubt his status. Now, I want you to keep all that in your mind. And as you have that in your mind, go back to Romans 8 and look at the language he uses. He says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And we are adopted by the Spirit into sonship. By him, we cry, Abba, Father, and the Spirit testifies that we are God's children. Now, what is all this communicating? Here's what I think this is communicating. In a very real way, I think what it's telling us is that what is true about Jesus Christ, what is true about him, his identity, his acceptance, the love that the Father has for him, all of that, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, listen, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, all of that becomes true of us. What is true of Jesus becomes true of us when we put our faith in him. And so when we put our faith in Jesus, the spirit comes into our life. And what does the spirit do? Well, part of what the Spirit does is he testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Listen, I think, I think one, of the, one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit, this is so important, one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is that he is always trying to remind you of who you are. That is one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is that he is trying to bring you back to, listen, if you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are his child. You are loved. You are accepted. And this is not because of your performance, and this is not because of what you've done. It's because of your position in Jesus. That's what's true about you. That's what's true about you. And so listen, the point is this, is that we start, for those of us who follow Jesus, we start from the place of being loved. 
and we grow from that place of love. And this is one of the biggest differences. I gotta tell you, this is one of the biggest differences between Christianity and every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world says you start from this place and you have to work your way to love. You start from this place and you have to work your way to acceptance. You start from this place and you have to earn favor with God. That's not what Christianity says. Christianity says you come as you are and you put your faith in Jesus and then you're gonna start from a place of being loved and accepted and you're gonna grow from that place because this is what is now true about you. Spirit is gonna testify that we are his children. I'll tell you, this passage is so powerful because it's communicating so much in so few words. I want you to notice what else he says. He says that the spirit, what else is the spirit doing? The spirit that you received, he's gonna bring about your adoption to sonship. So what's the spirit do? He testifies that we're God's children. And in addition to that, he also brings about our adoption. Now, I just wanna say about this, uh, I know for us in our society, we have, a, we have a certain picture in our mind that we tend to think of when we think of adoption. But I want you to know that back in the first century, adoption was actually a little bit different. It was a little bit different than it is in our culture today. So typically, back in Roman society, uh, the, the people who would have been adopting, it would have mainly been, mainly it would have been like a wealthy, an adult, a wealthy adult who did not have an heir to pass on their possessions, their estate, their inheritance, or their name. And so what they would do is they would adopt someone. And typically, they would adopt an adult is who they would adopt. That seems weird to us, but back in this, this time, that's how they did it. And, and when, when a person was adopted in this, back in this society, four things immediately became true about the person who was adopted. And I think the Apostle Paul has all four of them in mind. Here's what happened. When a person was adopted, first and foremost, your old debts and legal obligations were paid. So if you owed anything, owed any money, your mortgage payment, your car payment, I don't know if they had those back then, but they were all paid off. They were all, they were all covered by your father who was adopting you. Uh, you would receive a new name. You would have a new name and you would instantly become an heir. Now everything that was true about the father and everything that belonged to the father was now yours because you inherited a new name. The father became instantly liable for all your actions. So if you had any legal debts or any legal, if you were in any legal trouble, all of that would be subsumed into the father. He'd be liable for those things. And then you had an obligation now, a new obligation out of gratitude to please your father. And listen, I think the apostle Paul has all of this in mind, that when, when the spirit brings us into adoption, that what happens is this, all of our debts, all of our sins, all of our inability to keep God's laws, all of that is paid for, all of it's paid for. And then we receive a new name. We receive a new identity as his children. And as a result of that, everything that belongs to Jesus and everything that is true about him is now true about us as well. And I think what happens is the father instantly becomes liable for all of our actions and we have a new obligation to honor him. I believe that when he says that we are adopted, he has all of this in view. And then let me just say one other thing before we move on. Notice he says that we are adopted to sonship. I think this is really significant. The Bible is going to say, Paul says to both men and women, he says to both of them, you are adopted as sons. You are adopted as sons. Now, I know for us in our culture, that's kind of cringy to say that. And it might even seem sexist because we're saying, well, no, we should, we should change that. That should say sons and daughters is what that should say. But I actually want to, want to say about that, let me just say real quick, I, I, I want to say that I think to do that actually might be to miss out on the richness of what the Apostle Paul is actually communicating here. 
So back in Roman culture in the first century, uh, only sons could receive an inheritance. Daughters could not. It was a very sexist society back then. So when the apostle Paul says to both men and women, you are sons, that would have been highly subversive language. And what the apostle Paul was saying is no, both men and women are sons and that we get the inheritance that God has. Listen, in the same way that both men and women are called the bride of Christ in the Bible, men and women are also called sons of adoption. And I think that sometimes we can miss out on the richness that these metaphors are drawing out because sometimes we try to impose our culture into those things. But here's, here's the point that I'm trying to say is the Holy Spirit is always trying to draw our attention, not just from what we're saved from, not just that we're saved from sin, not just that we're saved from death, not just that we're saved from hell, but he's always trying to show us what we're saved to. We're saved to an inheritance. We're saved to adoption. We're saved to his family. And then, even better, I mean, gosh, this passage is so rich. Notice this next part. He says, and by him, by who? The Spirit. So this is all the Spirit doing this stuff. He's bringing about our adoption he is testifying that we're children, and it's by him, it's by the Spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, what, what is that? What is Abba, Father? What is Abba? Besides a 70s rock band that, uh, you know, does musicals and stuff. Can I, can I admit this in front of you? Can I be honest with you? I actually kind of like Abba. There, I said it. I said it. I did it. All right, it's good. You're clapping. All right, that's where we clap. That's what we clap for. All right. But uh, Abba... So what is Abba? Well, before it was a 70s rock band, it was, and actually it still is, believe it or not, an Aramaic word. And it, is the, it was the most intimate, childlike, endearing term that a child would use to talk about his father. The, the cultural equivalent would be like daddy, like calling somebody daddy. If you think about the childlike, intimate, endearing term. And um, listen, here's what I think is being communicated here. This is why I think this is so significant. I don't know if you had a good relationship with your father. I don't know if you did. I hope you did. Um, but I want you to think about this with me for a second. When did you stop calling your father daddy? How old were you when you stopped doing it? When did that start becoming embarrassing? When did that start feeling um, uncomfortable and like, no, that's what babies do. I don't do that. And I could just tell you, I could just speak for myself. I, I happen to have a, a pretty good relationship with my dad. My dad's an awesome guy. And, uh, but I'll just be honest, I don't call him daddy. I don't call him daddy. It'd be real weird for both of us if I did. I don't call him that. I call him dad. I call him paps sometimes because my kids call him paps. And so it's just kind of a fun thing to do. But I never, I don't call him daddy. I'll be honest with you. I don't remember when I stopped. I must've been pretty little. I must've been pretty little when that, that shift occurred. But I know there was a time that I did. And I think here's the point that I'm trying to make. Whether you had a wonderful earthly relationship with your father that makes this easy to understand, or maybe you had a painful relationship with your father that makes this hard for you to grasp, or maybe something in between, I think here's the point. The Holy Spirit is always trying to drive us to a place of greater intimacy and greater dependency on our father. Not just a formal relationship, not just something where we know God as Mr., not just that we know God as, as, as in a business relationship, but such childlike, intimate dependency that he wants to grow. That's, listen, that's where the Spirit's trying to push you, is into that place, that place where you, like a child, would call out with dependency and intimacy to call him Abba, to call him Abba. It's an amazing thing that the Bible is revealing to us here. So 
so much that the Spirit is doing. Some of you might be thinking, okay, man, this, this, sounds, this sounds, honestly, some of it sounds mystical and hard to understand. And so some of you might be thinking, okay, so practically speaking, what, how does this show up in my life? What does this change? And so let me just kind of close out our time by giving you three implications. Let me give you three implications of th- how I think this ministry of the Spirit can change and challenge us. And so I think what happens is as we embrace our identity as children, the more and more we embrace this and the more and more we allow the Holy Spirit to testify to our spirits that we are God's children. For those of us who are followers of Christ, I think there's a few implications. Here's the first one. I think what happens is we are increasingly freed from enslaving fear. The more and more I grow in my recognition and my identity as a child of God, I think what happens is the more and more I am increasingly freed from fear, from enslaving fear. In fact, this is exactly what the passage says. Look what it says in verse 15. The spirit that you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. You're not gonna go back to that place of fear again, is what he says. The the spirit is gonna give you security and confidence that you are a dearly loved child because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. I think sometimes, for some of us, we can become so unstable in our confidence that God loves us. Sometimes we play that, he loves me, he loves me not game. You know what I mean? Where it's like, I did good today, he loves me. But then like, I didn't do good today, he loves me not and he's disappointed in me. And I helped my neighbor today, so he loves me. And then I did that thing that I know I shouldn't do, that habit, that thing, I said that thing, he loves me not, he's so disappointed in me. I, I went to church at the 1115 service and the Browns are playing. He loves me, he'd be better, right? And then I got angry and I kicked the cat. And <laughs> By the way, God still loves you. <laughs> but I think we can do this thing. God loves me. God loves me not. God loves me. Listen, the Spirit does not bring us to that place of fear again. He's not drawing us back to that. And so we can have confidence. We can have confidence and security that we are accepted not because of what we do, but because of, who, because of whose we are and that we are his sons and we are his, his, his children. I actually love this one passage. 2 Timothy 1 says, God gave us, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love, and of self-control. I love this passage so much. I've actually heard this abused, but I love this passage so much because I think that what it's doing is it's describing to us how the Spirit gives us power over all varieties of fears. So first off, notice it says he's not gonna give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power. I think it's talking about power for circumstances. I don't have to be afraid circumstantially. I don't have to be afraid. When I think about the economy, I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid. When I think about my health, no matter what the diagnosis is, no matter what the doctor said. I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid when I think about my future. I don't have to be afraid when I think about who's in the White House. I don't have to be afraid of those things. Why? Because even those those things might be concerns to me. They don't dominate or overpower me with anxiety because I have confidence that I am a child of God and that God is in control and that God has it and that God loves me and that I'm accepted by him. Now, let let me be clear. When the Spirit leads us, that doesn't always mean he's gonna lead us to a place of comfort, and it doesn't always mean that he's gonna lead us to a place of security. If I told you that, I'd be setting you up for great disappointment. The Spirit of God led Jesus Christ into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. But here's what I can tell you, that when the Spirit does bring us into those places of wilderness, it's not for punitive reasons. It's not because he's trying to get back at you. It's because he loves you, 
as a dearly loved child, and that's going to lead to your growth in those things. And so I think, first and foremost, he's going to give us power over our circumstances. But then he's going to give us love. And I think love is for our relationships. The Spirit's going to remove fear out of our relationships and replace it with love. So now if I find myself in a tense or I find myself in a, in a relationship where it's strained or it's stressed, maybe you're in that place in a marriage right now, maybe you're in a friendship that's that way right now, where it's hard and it's, it's, it's a challenging thing. I believe that the Holy Spirit, the more and more you identify that you are a child of God who is dearly loved, the more you are able to love other people and respond with that kind of love, no matter how hard the relationship is, because you're not looking to those person, you're not looking to that person to fill that identity and that need, but you can actually turn to God. And he's also gonna give a spirit of self-control. Now, self-control, I always think this is so interesting. The Bible says that one of the fruits of the spirit is self-control. It's always kind of confused me. But I believe that what he's talking about here is that the spirit is gonna give us self-control over personal struggles and over sin. And that actually leads me to the, to the next thing that I wanted to say. So as we embrace our identity as children, we are increasingly freed from enslaving fear. Here's the second thing that happens. We are increasingly freed from the bondage of sin. The more and more we understand our identity, that we are dearly loved children in Christ who are well-pleased and accepted in God, I think that that leads us out of sin. That recognition leads us out of sin. Can I show you something I thought was cool? Romans 8 says, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And I know for a lot of us, when we hear led by the Spirit, we tend to think of guidance. We tend to think that the, the Spirit's going to guide me. He's going to help me make decisions in my life. So he's going to help me know which college to go to, or the Spirit's going to lead me to which job I should take, or he's going to lead me into the conversation that I'm going to have with whoever after the service. And let me just be clear. I do think that the Holy Spirit gives us guidance. I do believe that. But that's actually not what he's talking about in this passage. That's not what he means. He's not talking about guidance. What's he talking about? He's talking about that the Holy Spirit wants to lead you out of sin. That's what he's talking about. And the reason I know that is because of the verse right before this. What's the verse right before this? It says, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body. What he's saying is that the Spirit doesn't just want to give you guidance in this life. The Spirit wants to lead you out of sin, and he wants to lead you into holiness. But here is a critical truth, and I need you to catch this. For those of us who follow Jesus, we are not combating sin so that we can be accepted by God. That's not it. We're combating sin precisely because we already are accepted by God. And that is a key difference. And so now the reason that we can say no to sin isn't because God's going to be mad at me if I do it and God's going to be so disappointed with me and it's just the wrong thing to do. Now the reason I can say no to sin is because that's incongruent with who I am. That's not who I am. I'm, I, if I'm a child of God, that is entirely incongruent with the identity that God has placed on me. And so we grow from that place. We grow from that place. And that leads to the third thing. And this is the last one. As we embrace our identity as children, we are increasingly freed from enslaving fear. We are increasingly freed from the bondage of sin. And this last one I love so much. We're increasingly committed to God's family. We're increasingly committed to his family. I think it's easy sometimes for us to read this passage, I know for me this is possible, through an individualistic lens. And I don't think we can help it. I don't think we can because we live in the most individualistic society that mankind has ever seen. And I want to tell you that, yes, everything we just looked at has individual personal applications. It does. 
But sometimes I think we can miss this. In fact, I, I, I seriously, I was missing this until uh, Pastor Seth on our team pointed this out to me. And I was like, oh, yeah. I was like, there, there it is again. And I want you to notice that all of these words that are used in this passage in Roman 8, do you know that all of these are plural? Do you know that? They're all plural. Even the word you in the Greek is plural. And so it'd be like, I guess you could say like y'all. So if you were to read this correctly, it would read like this. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, those, those, plural, are the children of God, plural, children. The Spirit y'all received does not make y'all slaves so that y'all live in fear again. I can't, I can't even help the twang, right? The Spirit y'all received does not make you slaves so that y'all live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit y'all received brought about your, y'all's, yin's, adoption to sonship, right? <laughs> And by him, look at this, this is crazy, we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our, this is crazy to me, uh, plural, our spirit, singular, our spirit, that we are God's children. What's the point? Here's the point. If we're sons, if we're sons of God, if we're children of God, you know what that means? It means that God is our family, or God is our father. But you know what else it means? We are family. Right? All my brothers just done me. That's what it means. It means that we, we who belong to King Jesus, are brothers and sisters. Our brothers and sisters, that we are family. Listen, can I tell you what the Spirit loves to do? The Holy Spirit loves to build community. The Holy Spirit loves to build community. For some reason, there's this big emphasis in our society that spirituality is individualistic and it's isolated and it's personal. And I just want to tell you that, yes, there's a personal component to it, but that is not correct according to Scripture. The Holy Spirit is always trying to draw us deeper into family. Can I tell you what I think one of the most beautiful things the Holy Spirit does? I think one of the most beautiful things he does is he takes, he takes such an incredibly diverse, broken, messed up, unpredictable group of people from all kinds of backgrounds and upbringings and and he brings us together, and he makes us into his family. It's the brothers and sisters. It's what he does. I can just tell you, um, one of the places I get a glimpse of this, and if you've never experienced this, I hope you do. One of the, one of the best places I get a glimpse of this is, is, honestly, it's in my life group. Not perfectly, but we see this in our life group. In my life group, we joke around all the time. We say, under what circumstance would any of us ever be hanging out with each other if it wasn't for the fact that we are united <laughs> to Jesus Christ? Man, in my life group, we have different walks of life. We have different backgrounds. We have different political views. We have different social and economic statuses. We have different educational statuses. We have different personalities. We have different races that are in my life group. We have some people who are OSU fans, and we have some people that are Michigan fans in our life group. Don't clap. <laughs> we, have, we have people who are Browns fans in our group, and then we have sinners. And we're all, all of us are together. And... I'll be honest with you, man, the thing, <laughs> the thing that blows us away is what unites us, and we're not perfect at this, but what unites us is that above every other loyalty and identity that we have on this earth, we are children of our king. Amen. We're children of the king, and he makes us brothers and sisters. Did you guys ever look at Jesus' inner circle? It's crazy when you look at his inner circle. Did you know that in Jesus' inner circle of disciples, he had Simon, who was a zealot, who hated the government, 
And then he had Matthew, who was a tax collector who worked for the government. (laughs) Under what circumstance would these two guys ever be in the same room if it wasn't for the fact they were united in King Jesus? And you guys, that's what the Spirit's going to do. He's going to push us further into our identity as sons of the King. And as he does that, he makes us brothers and sisters in a new family. That's what he wants to do. That's what he wants to draw us into. I'm asking the band to come up, and as they do, I'm going to end with this quote. This is from Henry Nouwen in his excellent book, Life of the Beloved. He says, we must dare to reclaim the truth that we are God's beloved, even when our world does not love us. He goes on, as long as we allow our parents, our siblings, our teachers, our friends, our lovers to determine whether we're loved or not, we are caught in a net of a suffocating world that accepts or rejects us according to its own agenda of effectiveness and control. The great spiritual battle begins when we reclaim our status as God's beloved. And I think that's spot on. Listen, for some of you, maybe you're investigating Jesus and this is a whole new conversation for you, but I think I just need to tell you this, that this love and this acceptance and this adoption into God's family is on offer to you. It is. And it's not because of what you do. It's simply when you turn your faith to Jesus Christ, when you turn to him, all that's true about him becomes true, to, true, true about you. And so if you've never embraced Christ by faith, I would even encourage you today to do that. There's no special remedy or prayer to that. You, there's no recipe for that. You just turn to him. You just turn to him. You surrender your life to him. And for those of us who do follow Jesus, listen, this is what you need to hear. There's a voice of love. There's a voice of love that is calling out in the midst of all of the competing voices of hatred that are out there. And the question is, will you have ears to hear the testimony of the Holy Spirit? He will testify with your spirit that you are his child. So would you do this? Would, you, would everyone just bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment? And if you would, I'm gonna ask you to do something that might seem really weird to you, but it's not that weird. I want you to take your hands, if you would, and if you would just put them palm up on your lap, just put your hands like this, with your, just with your, your head bowed and your eyes closed and your palms up. This is just a posture. It's just a posture of receptivity. And maybe for you, if you've never embraced Christ, maybe now call out to him and receive him. And for those of us who follow Jesus, would you be willing with your hands out, would you be willing to receive, would you be willing to accept the testimony of the Holy Spirit? You are God's child. Would you be willing to let that in? Would you be willing to let this reality combat whatever lie it is that you're believing? You are loved. You are accepted. You are pleasing to your Father. And it's not because of what you do. Would you let that in? Would you let it in? Let the Spirit testify with your spirit that you are his child. Jesus, I ask you that you would let the truth of your word combat the lies in our heart. Lord, I pray that your truth would win. And I pray that we'd walk away as different people. Let the truth that we're your children penetrate deeply into our lives. Let that impact and affect every decision that we make. And let that impact the the way we relate to each other. And so we ask you that you would do this. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.